more weeks uh, talking about creating community, the journey towards better friendship. And really in this series, as we talk about community, we're talking about what have to be those building blocks, what have to be those kind of foundational pieces in our relationships, what have to be those rhythms and practices, and I mean, what has to really kind of be at the bedrock of community and relationships in order for them to thrive, in order for them to be uh, what we would hope that they would be. And the truth is that if we kind of look at our lives, most of us would be able to say and probably would say, man, yeah, I've got relationships, and they could be better in some way. It doesn't mean they suck. It doesn't mean you hate them. But we probably look at the relationships in our lives and say, man, they, they could be better. They, they could improve. They, I, I would hope that this isn't as good as it gets. I, I would hope that I could have better friendships. I would hope that the quality of my community could, could be better than it is now. Not because it's bad, but just because we would hope that it could be better. And the good news is I, I think they can be. Uh, really, the, the premise of this series as we talk about creating community, the journey towards better friendship, is that it can be, that there is a way to move towards better community. There is a way to see friendships strengthen and, and be more than, than what they are now. And kind of implicit in the title of this series is, is two things. One is that there's a responsibility that we have talking about creating community, not just, hey, here it is, it falls on your lap, or finding community, which is sometimes how we talk about finding friends or finding community. Kind of implicit in this is that there's a responsibility that we have, that there are certain practices or disciplines or rhythms that we have to incorporate into our life if we want to see community created. And I would just encourage you, if you, if you haven't been here um, or maybe if you have, but you've been uh, asleep or you've been um, playing Pokemon Go while, while here, then I would say um, just go back and listen to what we've talked about thus far because it really is important that if you want to see the friendships and the community that you have, there are really responsibilities that we can bring to the table to see that happen. And then second thing that's implicit in this as we talk about the journey towards better friendship is that it takes time. It's not something that just happens immediately. It's not something that just kind of goes, hey, you want to have community? Okay, we'll do these seven things tomorrow, and there you go. But that it actually takes time, that there's a journey, and there's a pathway, and it is something that doesn't happen overnight. It's something that doesn't happen immediately, but that there is a responsibility we have. There are certain things we can incorporate into our life, but it takes Time. So that's all just recap, okay? If, if you're new or, or if you've, uh, like I said, been here, but just to kind of catch us up to what we've been talking about, we're talking about that it is possible to see better friendships and better relationships built. There is, there is a way. And tonight, I kind of want to begin our time talking about this question, which is, what is a friend? What is a friend? When, when you think about a friend, if you were to define a friend and maybe even try to think about a word, what's a one word, um, what's one word that, that would define friend for you? Or what's an image that would define friend for you? What is a friend? And, and all of us have some sort of definition that we're working with on what a friend is. Maybe we've never actually sat down and written that of here's what a friend is. And then when people ask to be our friend, you know, we say, well, is this what your definition is? Does it? I guess no one really asks to be your friend anymore except on Facebook. But back in the day, you know, you'd knock on the door and be like, will you be my friend? Um, maybe we should bring that back. But, but what is a friend? What's the image that you have? What's the word that you have? What do you think of when you think about friendship? And here's some of the common images um, that come up if you just Google uh, friend or you Google friendship. So here's kind of the top things that come up. This one, which is just kind of funny, but this is like the top image that comes up if you Google friend. It's three fingers hanging out together. Or this, very similar, just one is fingers and one is females. And <laughs> This, this is not one that comes up, but I put this on there because a lot of us kind of think about this kind of thing in friendship, all those kind of movies, heavyweights, and uh, what was the Sandlot, and all, all these kinds of movies that are these young friends kind of adventuring together, right? If you haven't seen this, I recommend it. Um, I guess I'm not supposed to endorse movies probably from, you know, here, but I just did. Hopefully they'll send me a, a royalty check. Here's the, um, here's the definition of friend if you just kind of type it into Google. 
it's a part, you, you might, I don't know if you can read that, but it says a person who one knows and with whom one has a bond of mutual affection, typically exclusive of sexual or family relations. And then the second definition is just a religious group called friends. And then the verb, it says, add someone to a list of contacts associated with the social networking website. And I love its example. I am friended by 29 people who I have not friended back. <laughs> I actually got a friend. I sent a friend request to somebody. I didn't even remember this. And then a couple weeks ago, it said, so-and-so has accepted your friend request. And it was like four years ago that I asked to be their friend. And I was like, I don't want to be their friend anymore and unfriended them. So um, that may happen to you if you have 29 people waiting in your queue. So that, that's kind of what we think of when we think about friendship. What is a friend? It's whether those pictures or that definition kind of sums it up with that mutual affection that is there, right? Whether it's the three fingers or it's all those gals kind of hanging out together. It's this mutual affection. That's usually what we think of when we think about friendship. But here's the thing. There is so much more to friendship than that. And in fact, that definition doesn't even get close to how the Bible primarily speaks about friendship. The way the Bible primarily speaks about friendship isn't in any of those popular definitions or images that we culturally associate with friendship. But maybe the question that we should ask is this, why should we even consider what the Bible says about friendship, and obviously if you're a Christian, you would say, well, because the Bible says, so I'm supposed to consider it, but, but is there something else? Why, why should we look at what the Christian message, what the, what the Christian kind of vision of friendship is? Why should we look at that? Do we even look at that? I, mean, I think most of the time we, we have just kind of the different definitions or things that we've gone with, and we probably feel pretty good about our definition of friendship, right? Most of you probably would go, yeah, I feel pretty good about knowing what makes a good friend or what makes a bad friend or how to be a good friend. Why, why should we even consider the Christian message? And here's what I think is important for us to understand. The Christianity and the Christian message has always had something different, something unique at the very core of its DNA, the very foundation of its friendship vision. It's always had something different. There's always been something else at the core of Christian friendship that has made it unique and significant and something that, that people have always said, what's going on there? I have a few, a uh, handful of different quotes for you that are from uh, the first and moving into the, or I guess the second century within 100 to 200 years of the death of Jesus. So this is right when Christianity first got started. We're talking very early on. And this is, there was something at the core of Christian friendship that made it from the very beginning, and it's always been this way, that people said, there's something different here. So here's some quotes from the first 100 to 200 years of Christianity. This is a man named Tertullian. He was a church leader. And he's talking about um, what other people thought of the church. And he says, it's mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many, so this is people outside of the faith, to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another for themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready even to die for one another for they themselves will sooner put to death. And then another man, uh, another book that I read uh, this week talking about uh, Tertullian says this, the African church father Tertullian tells us that after observing the way Christians lived and seeing how they treated others, they so affected their pagan neighbors that they were given a slightly different name. So, so those that were not Christians looked at the way Christians were relating and actually changed the name instead of calling them Christians. Instead of calling them Christiani, the pagan people began referring to them as Christiani, or people made up of mildness or kindness. Here's another quote. This is, again, from the first, second century. It says, We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. Or Clement of Alexandria. He impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better, better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain 
And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. And the book of Acts, famous passage. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What is a friend? You see, there's something that you can see in those very early pictures of what Christianity was, something in the very DNA of their relationships that people both outside and inside recognized and said, there's something in here at the core that's very different from just mutual affection, something very different. And, and what is it? It's love. And most of those, uh, most of those quotes use the word love. There, there was love at the core, but that's not new. I mean, it's not that love is a, is a new piece to friendship, but it was a different kind of love. There was something about that love at the very core of relationships that made it a different kind of friendship. So what do we think of when we think of love? What do we, I mean, most of us would say, yes, our friendships are supposed to be loving friendships. And even in the church, we would say, yes, our relationships and what's supposed to define us is that we are loving people. But what kind of love? So there's something very different in the very core of their friendship, in the very core of their relationships. From the very beginning, it's always been so. It was love, but a different kind of love. And the word that would most describe what it means to be a friend in the Bible and what it means in those images is this. It's to be a servant. It's a kind of love that, that would say we share everything we have. We give. We serve. We, nothing is mine. I serve others. The very core of friendship in the Bible's vision is this idea of being a servant. Now that's interesting, right? Because I think saying that, none of us would go, oh, well, I don't think friendship is supposed to be serving. But if we go back to the original images of friendship and what most of us think of and what pops in the top of our head when we think about friendship, it's normally not. It's probably not. Oh, a servant. That's what a friend is. And yet the primary way that the Bible talks about friendship is to be a servant. This is what Jesus created, and then you saw it happen immediately in the beginning of the church and centuries after. What Jesus wanted for the church, what he wants for the church, is to be a servant community, a community of friends that are servants, not just mutual affection. Now, here's what this does. Here's what this does to love, because we would all say that uh, friendships are supposed to have love, and we would all say that the church is supposed to be a loving community. But here's what it does to love if you qualify it with being a servant. It deepens it. It broadens it. It makes it different. To think of love as being a servant gives you the kind of vision that we saw in those quotes. It changes it. So this is what we're going to talk about tonight. What does it mean to have a love that is defined by being a servant? And how can that kind of love be sustained in a community so that it's the kind of community that the picture was painted of what we, of what we saw? So here's the question. What does a servant love look like? What does a servant love look like? And what we're going to do is talk about five different ways Five different ways that a servant love deepens our understanding of how we normally think about love. And I want to kind of start with this uh, passage in Philippians where Paul writes to a church in a city called Philippi. And he writes to them, really getting at this idea that what the church is supposed to be is a servant community. And we'll, we'll take this and then kind of flesh it out. And here, here's what he says in Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, so he's saying if you have any of this, implying that we do as the church, if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul says, look, if you've got this community, if you're together, if you have a mutual affection and love and the Holy Spirit has bonded you together, then then I want you to have this unity. And then he's going to show us what that looks like, which is a servant love. And here's what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul is saying, look, if if you have some sort of community that's been made because of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit bringing you together, if you have that, then here's what I want for you. Don't be selfish, but instead, here's what's supposed to define your life together. Don't just look to your own interests. Look to the interests of each other. That really is to be a servant at the very core. So what does that mean if we flesh that out? What does servant love look like? What does a servant love look like that's different from how we often conceive of love? And here's five different ways. The first is this. A lot of times when we think about love, here's what we think. It's action, not words. And isn't that true? Isn't that true that love is to be action, not just words? That, I mean, the Bible talks about this a lot, that, that if you were to say to somebody that's in need, God bless you, go at peace, and yet you have, the Bible says, the world's goods and don't share that, man, there's something really wrong, right? That, uh, you know, there's flooding, crazy flooding right now happening in Louisiana. And if somebody's got a boat and they go, I'll pray for you, and they drive by, you go, that's, that's not the kind of love I'm looking for right now, right? My wife and I, Uh, Every year we've picked a verse for our marriage to kind of pray through and define our marriage. And the first one that we picked, that we read uh, on the day that we got married, was in the book of 1 John. And he says, hey, let's not just love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And we picked that verse because when you're kind of dating and then you first get married, it's I love you. No, I love you. No, I love you. No, you hang up. No, you hang up, right? And it's just stupid, right? And then... But what's so easy is it's just words, just words instead of action. So that's true about love. But there's something deeper than that. See, if we think about a servant love, it actually goes beyond just love is action, not words. It goes deeper than that. See, what the Bible says is that love is supposed to be action, not just words. It does say that, but it goes further. It says that love is supposed to be sacrifice. See, that's different from action. To say, hey, love me not just with your words, but, but love me in action. Okay, that's true. But if you think about what does it mean to have a servant love, that actually tells us that our love is supposed to be not just even action, but sacrifice. See, here's how, here's how Jesus says it. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, that's the apex of friendship in the Bible, this sacrificial serving of others. And, And here's how 1 John says it. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And this isn't just talking about actually taking a bullet for somebody or, or taking a cross for somebody. It's talking about a sacrificial love that doesn't just say, hey, my love doesn't just talk, it will actually act. It doesn't just say that. It says, no, I will lay down my life. Love is sacrificial. What does that mean? I mean, think about the language it uses to lay down your life. You know what that means? It means that love should in some way completely change your life. That our love towards others means is your life completely different than it would be if you weren't loving others? Is there a, is there a kind of love that is actually significantly in some way killing your life? See, that's more than just action, right? If you think about, man, is my life actually significantly different than it would be because of the way I love others? Does it feel like there's some sort of death happening to my schedule 
to my wallet, to my comfort, because of the way I love others. That's what lay down your life. I mean, Jesus says, look, there's, this is the kind of love I'm calling you. It's death. It's sacrifice. It's not, just, it's not just action. It's sacrifice. Does our love look like death? Does it look like, and I'm not saying it feels like death, like you're, this is killing me. I'm not saying that. Does it look like, though, my life has been laid down? Or does it just look like, no, I do nice actions? Well, see, the kind of love that Jesus calls us to, what it looks like to have a servant love, is a love that hurts, that your life is actually significantly changed. That it looks like you're willing to have every area of your life hurt. That's love. That, I mean... You can't look at the sentence that says, lay down your life and pretty that up and go, oh, that means kind of be nice to people. No, it means that there's a significant hurt that comes from how we love. You know, we all can live to the very edge of our selfishness in the sense of I can say, man, my schedule's all about me. My time's all about me. My money's all about me. I never do anything that makes me uncomfortable. I never do anything that causes me to stretch. We could all live like that, right? And it would probably feel, in some ways, really, really good. And what Jesus calls us to is the opposite. To say, actually be willing to die. Actually be willing to live and love in such a way that it hurts. That's sacrificial love. That's being a servant. Second way that we think about love, that that servant love actually broadens and deepens it is this. It's a very popular idea. Here, here's how love moves us. It's a very popular idea to talk about random acts of kindness, right? Or paying it forward. And there's been uh, movies about this. If you just Google random acts of kindness or paying it forward, all sorts of, I mean, news articles pop up every week. This place is doing this. This place is doing this. I actually looked up and uh, in Denver, there's actually two organizations not even far from us. One's called Random Acts of Kindness Foundation and Random Acts Org. Uh, two different organizations that are built on random acts of kindness. And that is great. Okay, if you know these people that work there, I'm not, that's awesome. Man, here's what's good about that idea. It says love should be ready to do something right? It says, hey, don't just, don't just love kind of when you, you feel like it. Love, man, should be ready. You see something and you do it. You see something. You, that's a beautiful idea, okay? Don't hear me saying something negative about that. But a servant love goes beyond that. A servant love goes beyond random acts of kindness. You know what a servant love does? A servant love is intentional. It's not random. To be a servant lover, to be the kind of friend that is saying, okay, our community is supposed to be defined by love, but a different kind of love, a servant love. What do servants do? Servants, I mean, if you've ever been a waiter or a server, they are intentional, right? You don't want a server that gives you random acts of kindness, walks by your table, is like, I brought you a Coke. I'm allergic to Coke, you know? I brought you bread. I'm gluten-free, you know? You don't want random acts of kindness. You want intentionality. You want your server to, to go, okay, here's what they need. I see that the ranch is running low. I used to work at Red Robin's. I see the ranch, is, the ranch always runs low at Red Robin's because people are like, ah, ah, ah. Me too. I, I, I love ranch. Okay. Anytime I go to Red Robin, they hate me because I'm like, okay, look, I've worked here for a long time, or I did work here for a long time, and I know all the different tricks, so I need like 10 different kind of sauces. I need fries, crispy fries. Anyways, okay. Guy knows. We, we went. Yeah, best experience of your life, right? Amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, okay, um, what was I saying? Oh, you want intentionality, right? A servant isn't just random love, it's intentional love. That's different, isn't it? Random acts of kindness is great, you know? You buy the person's coffee in the line behind you, you and it keeps, I mean, that's great. But a servant love is intentional. It's thoughtful. Even in the verse we looked at in Philippians, Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that word, and we looked a few weeks ago about encouragement and how Hebrews, the, the book in the Bible, it says that we are to consider 
how to stir one another up toward love and good works. Both of those look and consider their thoughtful words. They're saying, take thought about this. Don't just do random things. That's great. Do random stuff, man. Do it all the time. It's great. But take thought. Consider. Look. That's a servant kind of love. Here's, here's one of the images I love in the Bible that talks about this. In Leviticus 19, God's giving the Israelites, and this is you know, very different from, from how we live, so you know, there's going to be a huge cultural gap, but you can still see the principle here. He's giving them instructions about their farming practices. And he says, when you reap the harvest of your land, so imagine they've got this big field, right? And when you're collecting this stuff, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. Here's what God is instructing them. He's saying, look, you've got a field. And I want you to not just do random acts of kindness as you've collected all of your harvest and you're walking by and you see someone, you go, oh, you, you could use some wheat or whatever their harvest was. Hey, here's some grapes. Saying, I don't want you to do that. It's not random. I want you every year. I want you to be intentional about your planning. I mean, that, that would take planning and, and foresight, right? And budgeting to say, I mean, I'm going to build my whole, my whole field practices around only getting this part of the field and saying, man, I'm going to leave intentionally a whole chunk that's always going to belong to serve other people. So what does that mean for us if love is not just supposed to be random, but we're supposed to look how we can serve? We're supposed to do what even God instructs the Israelites here of, to build margin into our lives. That's what it means. It means we, we actually structure our life in such a way with our time and our money and everything, that we are intentionally building a life that is serving other people. Not just randomly, although keep doing random stuff, but to be intentional. I mean, don't you want the kind of friend in your life that says, I'm not going to just do random acts of kindness for you. I'm going to look at your life and I'm going to say, what do they need? Do they need me to watch their kids? Do they, do they need me to give them an encouraging word? Do they need me to help them with something? You know, a friend says, I'm moving, and maybe they don't ask. But you say, hey, can I help you move? A friend says, hey, I'm moving into a new house. And you say, hey, can I help you do anything in your house? Or you know even, you know the kinds of things that a new house takes, and you just say, hey, I'm going to show up and do that. Is that cool? Or you know someone's going through a hard time, and instead of saying, hey, is there anything I can do to help? Although that's not a bad question. Better is to just say, hey, I want to do this to help you. Can I do that? See, it's looking. It's saying, I want to serve you. It's not just random. There's an intentionality behind it. That's a servant kind of love. Servants are intentional. I don't have a butler, but if I did, I imagine they would be very intentional, right? They'd be looking and going, oh, I'm supposed to do this for you. I'm supposed to do this for you. They wouldn't just wait for everything that I would say. A servant is someone that's intentional. That says, I, I want to love you proactively, not just randomly. I want to love you. I want to, I, I, that's that, even at a higher level, I want to build margin into my life. That our, that our metaphorical field is not put all the way to the edges. Do you live your life to the edges or do you intentionally build it so there's margin? Do you build your budget so there's margin to love people? Do you build your time so there's margin to love people? That's what that means. It's not just random, it's intentional. And then third is, is this. A lot of times when we think about love, we think about uh, these kind of big extravagant acts. Popular maybe in the last 10 years or so is these proposal videos. People have these, and I, look, if you made one, I'm not knocking it, okay? But it's these crazy, like, I mean, basically like feature films that are made, right? Where you film the proposal that happened. And it's this big extravagant thing to show, look at my love, right? Weddings, same type of thing. I mean, I, don't, I, I read, I think the average wedding is $30,000, and to some of you, that's probably like, that's it? And some of you, that's like, oh, that's amazing, you know? I'm not, again, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying, we often think about love 
in these big extravagant things. That's what love is. That's what servant, that's what it means to be a servant. We serve in these big giant ways. Um, this is one of my favorite, uh, it used to be one of my favorite movies, and then Lord of the Rings came out. But this is a, a movie called um, Big Fish. And uh, have some of you, have you guys seen this movie? It's a good movie. You should see it after you watch Stranger Things. So it's, uh, this guy is trying to get this gal to love him. He's trying to kind of win her heart. And he, he plants like this whole field outside of her window of uh, whatever, what are those daffodils? Okay, so he plants a giant field of daffodils. It's okay that I don't know that. That's not my wife's favorite flower, okay? I planted a whole field of something else for her. Um, and he, so he, right outside the window, he does this, right? And he's like, look how much I love. It's this big, and I remember when I first saw that, I was like, yes, that's love. You do these big, extravagant things. But a servant love is so much more than that. A servant love is, is not just big, extravagant things. You know what a servant love is? It's the daily grind. That's a servant love. A servant love is then going out and watering those daffodils every single day and weeding those daffodils every single day. And if you pick the daffodils to give to your wife to get all the bugs off of them every single... That's a servant love. That's a lot different. Here's how the, the Bible says this. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, that's a daily consistency. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, the kind of love that it means to be a servant is not just big extravagant things. It is daily things. Author Richard Foster says this, and I think this is true about Christians often. In some ways, we would prefer to hear Jesus' call to deny father and mother and, and houses and land for the sake of the gospel than his word to wash feet. Radical self-denial gives the feel of adventure, but in service, we much experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, the trivial. You see, a lot of times, you, know you know what I know about uh, us as people, and especially us as Christians? We gather around big things. There's a crisis, and everyone, let's do it. If there's some big thing, man, we could fundraise a bunch of money to help someone that's dying of cancer. We can do some big project if, if all of a sudden someone's house in our community got absolutely destroyed. I bet that we could say, man, let's all rebuild their house this week and we could gather and we could do these big things. But isn't the daily grind of serving people what is actually more difficult than that? Isn't not just the big giant funding but the daily, man, I'm going to give. I'm going to always give regularly, cheerfully, sacrificially. Isn't it, isn't it easier in many ways to say, and I've done this, I'm going overseas to do a big mission project. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to go to Russia. I'm going to go to all these different places and do big mission work. And then to come back home and go, no, I'm going to actually love my non-Christian neighbors every single day of my life. Isn't it easier to pledge our allegiance in a wedding and spend thousands of dollars and do a proposal video than it is to wash the dishes and be the one that gets out of bed and checks if the door is locked? Isn't it? I love this, too. This is just uh, Dr. John Gottman, who's a marriage uh, expert, sociologist. He says this, which is just interesting from a marriage perspective, but it applies to all friendships. Many couples just realizing that they shouldn't take their everyday interactions for granted makes an enormous difference in their relationship. Remind yourself that being helpful to each other will do far more for the strength and passion of your marriage than a two-week Bahamas getaway. See, so often what we think is love is these big extravagant things. I mean, to fix my friendship or to fix a relationship, I need a two-week Bahamas getaway, I need this, I need that. Love is when we all come around and do some big giant thing. Okay, fine, let's do that. And that's good. But what it means to love like a servant is those, as Richard Foster says, daily deaths that you continually say, I'm here to serve, I'm here to serve, I'm here to serve, I'm here to serve. I'm, that's way harder. Let's be honest. 
Number four, love is not just actions, it's sacrifice. It's not just random, it's intentional. It's not just extravagant, it's consistent. And then it's not just reciprocal. See, a lot of times when we think about love, we've got this idea. Um, and this is from domesticateddivablog.com, which I don't know anything about that. But uh, This is actually my blog I write. Uh, it's my, my ghost, uh, what's the name, you know, whatever it might. Anyways, uh, I just typed into Google Images, I typed in uh, Love Tank uh, to get this picture because this is, very, this is a popular idea outside of this, but whenever that book came out, the, the Five Love Languages became very popular in Christian circles to talk about this kind of thing, which is this, that, that you give love and then you get love. That if you love your spouse and then she fills up your tank, then you're able to love with the love that she's given. And it's written about friends and it's written about parents and children. And there's been all sorts of spinoffs which is if I love you, I'm able to fill up your tank, and then you have the, the tank stuff to be able to love me, and then my tank's full so that I can love you, and it's this cycle of giving love and getting love. And see, a lot of times what we talk about in love is it's got to be reciprocal. I don't want to be in a relationship, and I'm not just talking about a, a romantic relationship, a friendship even. I don't want to be in a relationship where it's, it's just one-sided. I don't want to be in a relationship where I'm giving and never getting. And nobody does, right? I'm not saying that we should want that. We say, man, a, a healthy relationship, if it's going to work, if a friendship is going to work, it's got to be give and take. If a marriage is going to work, it's got to be give and take. And I need other people to love me, and then I can love them. And it's got to be reciprocal, otherwise I'm out. And we think about that in marriage, or we think about it in friendships. It's got to be reciprocal or I'm out. If, if I call them several times and they're never calling me back, maybe it's because they don't like you, but if, they, you know, if I'm calling them and they're never calling me back, then okay, fine, forget it. If I'm always praying for them and never, they're never praying for me, then forget. if I'm always helping them and then they're never helping me, then forget it. It needs to be reciprocal. Love needs to be reciprocal. But you know what Jesus does? He blows that thing to smithereens. Here's what Jesus says. But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. That's not reciprocal. Do good to those who hate you. That's the opposite of reciprocal. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, domesticated diva, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. That is not reciprocity in any way, shape, or form, is it? That's the opposite. It's not even just one-sided. It's actually undeserved. It's actually ill treatment from the other side. It's not that one arrow is loving and the other is doing nothing. It's one other arrow is loving and the other is attacking. And Jesus says, look, do you have friend? Look, do you have friend? Let's, let's hear Jesus' words. But I say to you who hear, let's listen to his words. Do you have friends that you have been blessing that have not been blessing you? Jesus says, love them. Do you have friends that you've been doing good to that have not been doing good to you and maybe have even been acting in hateful ways to you? Jesus says, love them. That's pretty different than reciprocity. You know what that is? That's grace. You see, the movement of servant love moves us from action to sacrifice. It moves us from random to intentional. It moves us from extravagant to consistent. And servant love moves us from reciprocity to grace. To grace. Very, very different. Not deserved. Who have you stopped loving because they stopped loving you? Who have you stopped praying for because they weren't praying for you? Who have you stopped encouraging because they weren't encouraging you? Who have you stopped inviting to hang out with you because they stopped inviting you? Who have you felt like they're not doing it to me, so I'm not doing it to them? Jesus says, love that's a servant love goes beyond what am I getting out of it. And then finally, Finally, what does it mean to have a servant love? A lot of times when we talk about love, 
A lot of times when we think about love, we say this. We say, you know what? Love, love's not a feeling. Love is something you should do even if you don't feel like it. And that is true. You're not always going to feel loving and you should love anyway. You're not always going to feel uh, these great feelings inside of you, but you should serve anyway. That, it, our emotions shouldn't control us. So there's some good truth to that. And yet, the Bible moves us deeper than just a dutiful love. It talks about a joyful love. Peter says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. See what Peter is saying here? Make every effort to have a brotherly affection towards people. And Paul then combines this and says, love one another with brotherly affection. Not just love one another with duty, not just love one another even if you don't feel like it, though that's true, but there should be something else to our love. There should be a brotherly or sisterly or familial affection to our love. See, without that, here's what happens. You get burnt out. If you're always loving out of just pure duty, saying, I don't feel like this, but I know I'm supposed to do it. I don't feel like kissing my wife when I come home, but I know I'm supposed to do it. And you always make it known, I don't feel like doing this, but I'm going to do it. I mean, eventually other people are going to experience that. And eventually you're going to burn out. Because if we're always loving out of obligation, it eventually feels like a job. Not, not a family. But see, the kind of love that's included in Jesus' definition, in the Bible's definition, the kind of love the different kind of serving love. It's a serving with an affection. Paul even says it in the verse that we looked at to begin with. He says, look, if there's any affection, if there's any, un if, if you've got this, then serve. We're supposed to serve others with a servant love, not just a love that we've often been used to. And part of that is an affection, a joyful experience in serving people. Look, I'm not saying you're always going to feel like that, but like Peter says, make every effort to have affection. If you don't have that, you should ask, man, why do I not feel affection when I serve? You should pray about that. You should think about that. You should, look, you should pause and ask yourself, if you're somebody that serves other people a lot, and some of you are, if you serve other people a lot, you should ask yourself, is there affection in my serving? Or is it all just duty? And part of what servant love looks like is an affection that says, I delight to serve these people. I delight to serve my friend. This is what friendship looks like. This is beyond just a mutual affection. It's beyond just fun. It's beyond just three happy fingers uh, sitting together. It's beyond just kind of those childhood adventures. It's a servant love. This is what has always been at the core of Christianity. And let's close with this. What happens when we try to serve like this? See, as, you're, as we're thinking about this right now, and as you're kind of thinking about these different ideas, what, what's going on? Are you overwhelmed? Does it feel like a lot? Do you feel, do you feel guilty? Do you feel, man, if I try to serve like that, if that's what defines servant love, whew, that's a, little, that's a little intense. Do you feel right now as I talk about that, kind of the, the failure and how much we fall short of that? See, that this kind of love is a love that moves us beyond all the boundaries that we put. It moves us beyond all the different parameters that we put on love and our space and our comfort and our... I mean, doesn't this kind of love confront us with our own self-interest, with our own limits of comfortability. Doesn't this kind of love push on us? Doesn't it seem beyond us, too much for us? It is. And this is what Paul says back to Philippians. He says this, 
have this mind among yourselves. So let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Be a servant lover. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know what that's saying? This is outside of you. This is something that is too much for you. That even as I talk about those ideas, I know, as I've been studying it this week, wow, that's a lot, Jesus. Wow, that's a lot, Paul. Wow, that's a lot, Peter. That's what love is? It pushes on us. It makes us feel it's beyond us. And Paul says, yes, it is. But he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which means attached to him, we have access to that kind of love. We have access to the kind of power and ability to begin to move in that direction. And then look what he does. I know we can't see it in English, but then this actually becomes a hymn. This is actually a hymn. It's a song he begins to sing. It'd be, it'd be like if you're writing about America, and then all of a sudden as you're writing this letter about America, you just kind of throw in there, my country, tis of thee, or something. Or you're writing about love, and then you just, instead of just continuing to write about it, you throw in some Sinatra lyrics or the weekend lyrics or whatever, you know. And he says this, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what Paul does? He says, this is a love beyond you, but this mind is yours in Jesus, attached to Jesus, and then he moves into directing us to the fact that Jesus served us. He says Jesus was this ultimate servant that left everything to serve us. He left his comfort and he left his riches and he left his, his dignity and status to, to become a human, to become a baby, to become poor, to serve us. You see, when we think about serving, one of the ways I know of what it looks like to worship is to go, man, when we think about all those different ways of what a servant lover is, isn't that difficult? And yet, that's how Jesus has loved us. See, hasn't, hasn't Jesus, this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, look at Jesus. He says, I want you to serve, and you can't do that. But look at Jesus. And when you see him, it begins to change your heart. If you know how you've been loved, if you know how you've been served by him. Do you know that Jesus doesn't just love us in action, but he loves us in sacrifice? That he actually literally laid down his life for us? Do you know that Jesus doesn't just love us with random acts of kindness, but that Jesus goes, I know exactly what you need. And, and not just in the past, but today, Jesus goes, I, I know exactly what you need and, and I'm going to serve you. That's what the Bible says. You know that Jesus doesn't just love us with big, extravagant things, but he consistently is loving us day after day after day. The Bible says that the mercies of the Lord are new every day. He's there every day saying, I'm here. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to love you. I'm not going away. Do you know that Jesus' love is not reciprocal to us? Jesus serves us in a way that's not reciprocal. Look, if you feel like you haven't been loving to Jesus and you feel like you haven't held up your end of the bargain and you feel like, man, I haven't done my part, Jesus goes, that's right. And I love you just the same. I don't need any reciprocity here. You don't need to fill my tank. I love you just the same, a gracious love. And do you know this? Jesus is a, a servant that loves us joyfully. Jesus didn't go to the cross with his boots on, saluting God the Father. Jesus doesn't love us out of duty and obligation, but with joy and affection. Paul one time writes to the church and he says, I yearn for you all, talking to the church, I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is he has the same affection for his church that Jesus feels for them. But he couldn't say that if, if that didn't mean something. You see, when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't look at us with a, a dutiful, obligatory service, but with an affection. You see, why is this so important? 
Why, why, why is serving at the very core of Christian friendship? Why is the idea of being a servant, the very core idea of being a Christian friend, why is that something emphasized over and over again? You know why? Because God cares for us. He cares for his family so much that he wants to make sure that we are served. That's why he builds it in letter after letter, book after book in the Bible, and he tells people, serve, 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 serve like this, serve like this. Why? Why would he give all those commands? Because he loves us as a family and wants us to experience that serving. That's how much God cares about us. When we take communion, we remember that Jesus was the perfect friend to us, that he served us in all of those ways, joyfully, consistently. We take this every week to remember his grace is new all the time. In sacrifice, that his body was broken, his blood was shed. Intentionally knowing exactly what we need today. Jesus serves us. He's the ultimate friend. And the more we see him like that, the more our hearts change to be able to then go, I can serve other people. This mind is mine in Jesus. So let's pray and let's sing. And also, and you know, I don't, I don't say this much. Let's try not to just make everything about this because I know people are sensitive to this. But we also, you know, we have offering baskets up here and most people give online because most people don't even know what a check or cash is. And that's okay. But one of the ways that we serve each other is by giving the Bible calls us to something called a tithe, which is 10%. And I, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on this right now. But I would just say this. Part of what it looks like to serve is to give our money. Because God's given it to us, not for ourselves, but to serve. And let me say this. Man, this church couldn't exist without the people that do that. So thank you for faithfully doing that. And for those of you that maybe that's a struggle for you, I would consider you to look at Jesus who gave everything to serve us and let that inform how we give. God, I thank you that you are a servant to us, that you're not a God that uh, just stands distantly. You're not a God that, um, that expects us to serve you and make your life better, but rather you've come here to love us and serve us there is no God like you. There is no God even conceived of like you. No one even makes a pretense to invent a God like you. You're the only God that claims as his very identity to be a servant. And I thank you for that. God, I pray that you would help us to see you as a servant in all the ways that we need to. And even as Paul ends his, his uh, call to serve with worship, God, as we sing songs now to you, move in our hearts to see you as a God that is a servant, as a God that has served us. We thank you for this, Jesus. In your name, amen.